You're listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Yeah, Topo Chico is an overrated sparkling water, by the way. Why do you think? No, it's not. It is Topo Chico is the best sparkling. You just don't like the carbonation? No, I don't like anything about it. Why do you drink them like they're going out of style? Because like, that's the, because we buy an ass load of them, and the fridge is full of Topo Chicas. We'll walk down and drink regular water. But that's not. That, Why do you oh. drink something you don't like? That makes no sense. Okay, here, here's what I said. I did. I don't like it on the scale of sparkling waters. What I would you still like Pellegrino prefer, better. Yes, Pellegrino is the superior sparkling water. Okay, Perrier, Perrier, Perrier. All right, you ever heard of Perrier? I, yeah. Okay, they're I'm a fan of both. They're all right. They're, they're the original, the OG sparkling water. Okay. <laughs> Topo Chico, garbage. Everyone no, likes it. It's awesome. Why? Because they, it comes in glass or plastic. Okay, so does Pellegrino. Invalid. No, it doesn't. Yes, it does. I'm just I'm giving you a list. That was the first one. Uh, okay, you're already in the hole. Okay, I like the way it's carbonated. Some are carbonated too small, and it's. I like this one, kicks you in the ass. It's good. I don't, I want to drink water it's to be high versatile, not also, to be punished. It, it holds a, uh, a flavoring well because it's so robust. I think you made that up. Maybe you know what I will I, say, I, though. Maybe grab it. Here's what I'll say I'm grabbing it. The lime ones, those are pretty good. All right, the Topo Chica lime. But I don't. Why would you want a glass bottle anyway? Because uh, it holds it colder, longer. What? The glass makes yeah, it but colder. You, you can't like. I mean, you put that. It doesn't fit in your cup holder in your car. Oh, that's true. Okay, you can't screw back on the top. So if you, that's also true. you gotta like you've got a, a hazard on your sitting on your desk. If like someone comes in, and knocks your desk, and then your glass bottle. Okay, with, over, you realize with you, with you just talking smack about Topo Chico, they're never going to be a sponsor. Yeah, I don't think we had any danger of that happening. No, you don't know. Time. You don't know what I'm working yeah. oh, in the behind okay. the scenes. You don't know the talks <laughs> I'm involved in. All right, you know, okay. don't start talking yeah. smack about uh, Mailchimp or a. Uh, Ma- <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? What I just did, I increased the likelihood of a Pellegrino sponsor. <laughs> I'm a big fan, guys. All right. (laughs) Hey, Wendy. Hey, how are you? So glad you connected with us. Thank you. Me too. What we do is we just talk about decision making. And so both Sanger and I are financial advisors by trade. And we what we know is that people's uh, investment results are a result of their behaviors and their behaviors are all focused around decision-making. And so as financial advisors, we have uh, really spent a lot of time building the discipline around decision-making. So we thought it would be fun to build a podcast around just talking with people who've had interesting stories, uh, important decisions they've had to make, and just explore the process of decision-making. So we're glad you could join us. Excellent. So take take me back to that that day, some almost 20 years ago. Where Where were you living at the time? Absolutely. I was in another part of New Jersey at the time, Hackensack, New Jersey, in Bergen County. 
and I commuted every day by train into the World Trade Center. The PATH train went directly into the World Trade Center, and that's how I came into the office. At the time, I worked for Empire Blue Cross Blue Shield, and we had many different offices, but the headquarters, about 2,100 employees, were in World Trade. Mm, Tower. Tower one, and I was on the 29th floor. Oh, my gosh. You know, whenever I speak about 9-11, I always like to emphasize the fact that it happened to regular people on a regular day. Because I feel like there's the tendency when we see horrific events on the news or terrorism, I guess our mind, our defense mechanism is, oh, it happened to to those people over there. But these were just regular Mm -hmm. people that got up, you know, put a suit on or a dress or a pair of pants and went to the office. It was Tuesday. I was working on a project called HIPAA, which most people have heard of. Big deal at the time to implement HIPAA for the largest insurer in New York. And Tuesday was just a day we had a normal, boring status meeting. It was supposed to just be a boring day. I remember actually very well. I was getting ready for school. I think my memory of it was I was getting ready for school, but I think that the timing, school had already started and maybe it was closed for the day. I don't uh, really you were you, you were getting ready to leave the house. Yeah, I was, I was, you know, for school. I think six or seven, six years old. Yeah. And I remember, Sean, you said, hey, come back, come come here, Sanger, come here. And I, and I was like, okay. So I started running down this long hallway to my parents' bedroom. And my mom goes, Sean, no, what are you doing? And, and he said, you need to, he needs to see this and pulled me in front of the TV. And right when he pulled me in front of the TV was when the second tower hit. And mm-hmm. Wendy, what you just said, put it into perspective for me because my whole life I've lived with the memory of that moment and then nothing else happened that day. You know, I don't remember anything else that happened that day, Yeah, but I didn't have an event to experience. I had five seconds of TV footage and then, you know, I probably ate fruit snacks. Well, I, you know, the reason is that, you know, obviously at that time I didn't know what was going on and what we knew at the time was, a plane had hit a tall building and I, yeah, and that was all we knew. And so I remember that, you know, that's, well, that's going to be memorable. You, you know, if, if that's all that happened, that's going to be a memorable thing that happened. And, and they were showing it. I remember we were watching the today show and it was on, and we always had the today show on at the time. And uh, so I remember calling you in, not knowing that it was the event that it ultimately became and, and was, but uh, I just thought, oh, you'd, you'd want to see that because that's a that would this going to be a memorable event. And I remember pulling you in, and that's when they showed the uh, video of the second uh, plane hitting the second tower. Yeah, I've always thought of that. Like, I w- I'm glad that you did because you d- you didn't really know what was going on. But I probably would have been much le- I much more disassociated with it than most people. When I talk to people my age, their memory is, oh, I just remember my mom saying I wasn't going to school that day, or I was already at school and my mom came to pick me up and she was really scared and I went home and I watched cartoons, whatever it was. But they don't remember the impact of realizing in real time with everybody, hey, this is significant. I I remember all that day, uh, I was supposed to leave for a conference in Orlando, Florida, uh, the next morning and thinking all that day that of course, uh, I'll leave in the morning to go on this conference. 
uh, you know, just didn't have a, a a grasp of the scale of what was going on. And of course, they grounded all the flights uh, later that afternoon and or that morning. And I remember the stillness and the calmness of the day because we live close to uh, an Air Force base uh, where my uh, you know where our house is. And there were there's some jets fl- scrambling, but other than that, nothing was going on. And when those jets would scramble, it was there was this unusual, not panic, but it was noticeable. Uh, you know, so I, I remember that day, and I remember everything else getting canceled that week, and watching it in the TV, and uh, just the, you know, I can't imagine how it was, Wendy, for for you, but you. You were there in the office. You made it into the office. You were up on the 29th floor. Tell me about what you were in the first tower that got hit. Is that correct? Yeah. It was so the tower that was hit first, but fell second. Yeah. And, and to your point, how people didn't know right away what had happened, except for the fact that a plane hit the building, even on the inside, right. it was the same. We didn't have any more information. And at the time, there were no iPhones. There was no instant information. You know, people had flip phones or beepers and, and things like that. And the original reports was that a Cessna, like a small sightseeing plane, right. hit the building. So people have this, this image in their mind that inside we knew what was happening and we ran down the stairs at 100 miles an hour. And it really was not like that. We thought something happened. We proceeded to go to the stairs. But there wasn't this mass running because we thought it was an accident, which is, I think, a blessing in disguise because if you knew right away, I mean, imagine wherever you are today, if a plane hit your building or there was even a rumor, you would automatically assume terrorism because that's the world we're in now. But dial back 20 years ago, that was not the first thing that went in your mind. And I think that saved some lives because there wasn't like this massive stampede. I was literally getting up to go to a meeting. It's quarter to nine and I heard a crash. And my first thought was like the building is shaking an earthquake, which is so not you a could, common you could feel the building. Now re- remind me, okay, you're on the 29th floor. Where did the building, where did the plane hit? What it was floor? way above. It was like, you know, somewhere between the eighties and nineties. Yeah. Um, but, and you were still able to, feel that vibration it was it's kind of like a, a thwack and then the building sort of swayed from side to side and skyscrapers are meant to sway as far as in wind and in air currents but this wasn't like that but again we thought either something hit the building or maybe there was you know some kind of a natural type of a situation an earthquake etc so what you were on your way to a meeting what uh, you felt that you heard it you felt it What'd you do? Interestingly, there was no direction. So I think we're all kind of programmed that in an emergency, there's going to be a loudspeaker or some guy with a megaphone saying, you know, head this way, go to the exits, do this, do that. But there's nothing, no direction at all. But instinctively, and and this kind of goes to your your questions about decision making, it didn't feel right. You know, you're in a skyscraper, you feel this, this thing happen, whether it's natural or unnatural, your first instinct is, I think I should get out. And people often ask me, why did you go to the stairs? Why did you choose to walk down 29 flights of stairs versus go to an elevator? But again, from the time we're little, what are we told in an emergency? Don't go in an elevator. So you think that. 
one thing a lot of people don't know about 9-11 is people were in the elevator at the time of the attack and all of those people died. Wow. And my understanding, and I'm not a, a scientist, but it had something to do with the amount of jet fuel that severed uh, the lines that, that the elevators run. And I actually lost a, a person from my company in the elevator. Oh, wow. So there, there was nobody at the elevator saying, hey, don't use the elevator to go down the stairs. Oh, it was just kind of an, an instinct where we just all sort of grouped ourselves with our coworkers and headed to the stairs and then proceeded down just, the stairs. Just from your, your training, your, your just basic sort of emergency preparation stuff, standard stuff. Did they have drills, I guess, at the building? Did you ever have to go through that? You no, know, I don't remember there being any extensive drills. You know, there's, there's pamphlets, there's things, you know, where I've worked since then, it's sort of part of daily life, but there weren't drills. There was not a lot of um, ability to help people who needed assistance. So if someone was on crutches, someone was disabled, there was not really a planning for that, unfortunately. And that, that was another reason people died. So you went to the, uh, you went to the stairs. Was it, what was the mood in the stairs? You know, it was, it was sort of interesting. I went to the stairs and the mood in the beginning was kind of jokey. You know, sometimes people have nervous laughter. You know, I remember one person saying, you know, this is why your mother always tells you to wear clean underwear. You never know what's going to happen. Like people were just being silly, walking down the stairs. It started to get more tense, at least from my vantage point, about halfway down the stairs, because that's when the firemen in full gear started coming up. And the stairwells were very narrow. People have this image, giant building, giant stairwell. It was so narrow that as I was going down the stairs and the firemen were going up, you kind of had to move your body to the side to allow them with all their gear to get past you. Um, when I saw the firemen and it was continuing and continuing, something made me ask them, what exactly hit this building? I don't know what made me ask, but I guess it was just a feeling. And they said a jet. And all of us, especially born and raised in New York, we knew jets didn't fly over our building. We knew the flight patterns. But again, we didn't think terrorism. We thought maybe a pilot veered off course, had a heart attack, was inexperienced, didn't think what was happening. Then I started to smell jet fuel. And that was terrifying. You could smell jet fuel at the 29th floor. I could smell it in the stairwells. It was like a, a fume smell. And then water started coming in a little bit. I guess some of the sprinkler systems activated. I took off my shoes because I'm klutzy and I didn't want to fall down the st wet stairs and heels. Oh, they were getting, the stairs were getting wet. Oh, yeah. Like severed, severed lines probably or something. Something. And I, I actually, since then, any office I've ever been in, I always have sneakers. I'm always in like that mode. But um, as I went down, it just the, went once. The water was there, and once the smells were there and the firemen, the mood quickly went from kind of jokey to what is actually happening. Let's let's get out of here. Yeah, I would imagine that once you saw that, that everybody had the opportunity then to, to panic. You know, I feel like it was almost a conscious effort for people to not flip out and kind of wait and see because... You know, you get that mob mentality. If if a handful of people started saying like, oh, my God, the sure. world's coming to an end, it could have had a very different outcome as far as an orderly evacuation. Yeah, it doesn't take very many people no. in a group to change the attitude to let's all oh. freak out the sky's fault. 
Exactly. That actually started, though, when we hit the lobby, because when we exited the stairwell and was in the lobby, just like I mentioned in the beginning of the evacuation for me, where there was no direction, no people, nothing in the lobby, it was sensory overload. So you had every type of emergency worker, people mm-hmm. pointing at different um, directions, go here, go there. And they kept saying, out this door, cover your head and don't look up. That was, they just kept saying, don't look up. And then of course, what do you do? You got to look up. Right? Yeah. And the only way I can describe it is it's, it's the thing of nightmares. Yeah. First, just the swirling of a million pieces of paper. Think about how many, you know, Paper goods are in an office, glass flying out windows, dirt, debris, and unfortunately, bodies. And, and the sound and sight of, of people jumping, which, you know, has been whitewashed from a lot of videos that are on the news. And for good reason, you don't want to give children nightmares. But the thought process of how bad it must have been that a person decided they weren't pushed out the window. They decided to go out the window. So it was the thing of, of nightmares. And then I crossed over and a good Samaritan asked me and a group of people I was with if we wanted to go to her home. There's lots of residential apartments all around to use phone and, and just regroup. And that's what we did. But of course, we had no idea that the buildings were going down. So that was a decision that seemed like a good idea at the time, but was not. So then were you? sort of trapped in the city, sort of at her place? What happened for me was I was in her apartment maybe 15, 20 minutes. I kept my shoes off. How far away was it? Probably half a block. Oh. Terrible with distance. It it was right there. And I had my shoes off to kind of dry out and my belongings in a back bedroom. I was able to make a connection with my dad, who lived in Virginia at the time. All the phone lines within New York you couldn't get through because the cell towers and, and all of that were jammed. And then all of a sudden, I heard a sound that I, I can't replicate. It was like a freight train and a thunderstorm and, and something straight out of a horror movie, like this rumbling, crazy sound. And an alarm went off in this little apartment building, maybe a five, I don't know, six-story building. And the woman who owned the apartment said, that's an evacuation sound. We have to get out. So we ran down five flights of stairs. I didn't even have my shoes or belongings. I left them in the back bedroom. And it was like a blizzard. You couldn't see anything in front of you. And what it was, it was the South Tower going down. You may or may not know, only took 11 seconds. 11 seconds for a skyscraper to go down. To completely crumble. Completely crumble. And we couldn't see. And I remember specifically, I had this obsession that I wanted to run towards the water. If you've ever been in lower Manhattan in that area, Battery right. Park City is, is close to the World Trade sure. Center. It's walkable. And in my mind, my decision was go towards the water because maybe there'll be a boat. Maybe there'll be somebody to rescue you. Maybe you can swim. I don't know what right. sort of Olympian I thought I was at the time. <laughs> but you just, you, you, you go into this survival mode that you sure. can't even explain. And one strange thing that happened is, so I'm running, I can't see, I have no shoes. And there's a massive amount of dirt and debris swirling. And I start coughing. I have asthma, like everybody. And 
I'm thinking to myself, wow, so whatever's coming down hasn't hit me. I'm still here. I am not dying of an asthma attack in the streets of New York. That is just not how it's going to go down. So I yelled out into this running crazy crowd around me. Does anybody have an inhaler? And as we're running, it was like a, a crazy thing. This total stranger just opened her purse, threw an inhaler at me. I took a couple of puffs. I threw it back and continued and just made my way somehow to the water's edge. And then I thought to myself, okay, well, this seemed like a good plan at the time, but there are no boats. What are we going to do? And no sooner did I think that where that crazy sound happened again, and it was now the North Tower going down, but we had no place to run. So we all, you know, all strangers just kind of looked at each other and said, okay, we're going to like lay down on the ground, cover our heads and just hope that we survive this second one. And, and we did. And then there were planes, fighter planes coming. And by that point, we knew it was terrorism. Because I forgot to mention, when I was in this apartment, news, news had already come through about the hijacking in the planes. So when we saw the American fighter planes, which were the good guys, we didn't know. We said, these are planes that were maybe hijacked too, that were coming to finish us off. So we went back on the ground again, covered our heads again. People were and, praying. And you don't know if they're going to hit another building. I mean, you're, yeah. for, for those of us that don't live in New York, it's like I've got to remind myself, every building is massive. Yeah, I went to New York last summer, and I remember getting on the subway. At, at one point, I look around. Every building is taller than any building I've ever seen in my life. I get on the subway. I ride it for an hour. I get off. And again, every building is taller than every building I've ever seen in my life. So I can only imagine you're running down the street. Even if you get out of range of, of one of the towers falling, you're still surrounded by 50-story buildings. And people don't think it, Manhattan is an island, right? It's, it's an mm -hmm. island. It's surrounded by water. So at some point, there's nowhere to run. You've got to either get on a bridge, take a, a bus, take a train, take a something and nothing was running and and luckily when the dust settled after the first tower all of a sudden there were boats if you ever have a chance to google tom hanks narrates a wonderful little film on youtube called boat lift which talks about how all the boats just got together to rescue folks like me wow. i got rescued by a ferry new york waterway ferry boat they came and like in every disaster movie you ever saw, they literally said women and children first mm -hmm. and men lined up on one side and helped the women because we weren't at a dock. So we had to be kind of hoisted over a railing and into these boats. And we didn't even know where the boat was going. We didn't even ask. It didn't matter. Yeah. It's like, just get me out. And the most chilling thing, and I always remember this and I still get goosebumps, is being on that boat towards New Jersey, which is where it was heading, Jersey City, looking back at Manhattan and my office, my buildings, my city, it was gone. And there, there's no other feeling. It, and people think these big office buildings are very sterile and unemotional, but people live there. People work there. You know, that's yeah, you where you there every happy day. hour. Yeah. You know. Wow. Like that's so fascinating to hear because like I was sharing earlier, you know, my experience with 
Obviously, I've lived my whole life and every year on 9-11, every time I go to a, see a TSA agent, you know, I think of I think of the impact and it I like to think that I have taken it seriously, right? Or that it had an impact on me, even though I was really young. But the impact that it had on me is is five seconds. That's that that was the impact. Everything else was just lingering. Just, oh yeah, I remember it happening. Well, you know, um, with respect to your personal experience, but it, it changed, you know, the way that we interact with each other. It changed the way people felt about patriotism. It changed the the powers of the government. It changed how oh, we absolutely. travel. I mean, it, it was, you know, can't understated and you know overstated enough that really just changed how the world interacted. There's sort of society and how we lived life before 9-11 and how we live life after. It was a such a defining moment. Um, you know, it, I, I'm just baffled and just so curious, I guess, uh, better word, you know, how you go through decision making at such a heightened emotional state, you know, deciding to take the stairs. You know, there may have been some people who didn't. So, you know, it's 29 floor. I'll wait for the take, elevator. I'll, I'll wait for the elevator. I'll take the elevator. Uh, or, or I'll just sit tight. I, you know, I, it, it was a Cessna that hit the plane. I'm, I'm, we're okay. I've heard fire drills before. They'll come get me if it's serious. You know, I imagine there were so many decisions that were made to sit tight, stay put. Yeah. Um, to your point, that has changed a lot since 9-11. In my building now, I work in a 16-story building in Newark, New Jersey. And Newark has a big airport, which isn't all that far from where I work. So yeah. I see planes go by all the time. And I often think, you know, what would we do? And I actually volunteer for my company. They have like a volunteer safety fire warden. Of course, I'm the fire warden for my floor because I'm not letting anyone else decide. And I go crazy when people don't show up to fire drills. And the, the people that run these drills who are X, FDNY, they're like, we've never seen compliance at a corporation <laughs> like yours. And I'm like, so let me tell you a little bit about myself. Yeah. You'll hear people say, oh, I just have to get off this conference call. I just have to lock up my laptop. I'm like, no, in, in reality, you're not going to get a second chance. You have yeah. to just. There's nothing worth dying for here. Not your not your purse. Not right. your wallet. You, didn't have, you didn't have very many seconds to, to make that decision, did you? No, and and I think that's that's one of the things that you have to go on your instinct, but you also have to think, and you have to say to yourself, well, what's going to happen? Because people say, well, what if my boss tells me I needed to stay inside? I said, well, if there's nothing going on, you can come back. You know, leaving right. the building is not a. If there's nothing there, it's all good. But it's. Um, Did everybody at your company get out? You 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 shared with us the. The person in the elevator, but did everybody else get out? No, um, we lost eleven people, including Jeez. one of my best friends in the world. And, um, you know, statistically, I hear people say, "Oh, you're lucky; you only lost 11. Just like I hear people say that the bombing of the World Trade Center in 1993. One of the phrases that drives me crazy is, "Only six people died." Well, if you're the relative or friend of one of those right. six people one of whom was pregnant at the time, there is no only. And people say, well, in the lower floors, you had a better shot of getting out. That's true. But you could be hit by debris. I mentioned the elevators. My friend in particular, Abe Zelmanowitz, he stayed in the building. 
on purpose because his good friend and another gentleman I knew was a quadriplegic and they needed to wait for firemen and people with special ability to get them out of the building. They didn't want to, they didn't want to leave him behind. Exactly. And he actually, my friend Abe told Ed's nurse's aide that worked with him, okay, you go home. It's okay. I'll stay. He called his family. He said, this is what's happening. I'm just going to stay and, and we'll get out once the firemen are here. And then he called and said, good news. The firemen are here. We're on our way down. And that's when the North Tower went down. Wow. He, they have streets named after him. President Bush at the time spoke of him. He's a, a wonderful soul. And I believe he would have stayed with a stranger because it's just who he was. He wasn't going to let someone stay alone. Right. right. That is one of the things that adds to survivor's guilt. I know a lot of times that's a question about and, and the whole like, why am I here? And these other people are not here. People I know, people I don't know, people who I perceive are better at me than me and, and should be here. And the only way I've been able to make any kind of peace with that, and I'm not going to say I've made complete peace, but what I have is I'm not meant to know all the secrets to the universe. I'm here for some reason. I, I'm not a deeply religious person, but to me, I'm not meant to know. And what I try to do is make my life count or, or help in some way to say there's, there's 3000 plus people. Cause now all of the people who have died from nine 11 cancers since nine 11 mm -hmm. who can't, their voice is gone. So keeping the memory alive, doing things like this podcast, going to schools, speaking, making sure that people don't forget, because especially out of the tri-state area, you'll hear people say, oh, aren't they over it by now? Why are they still talking about it? Yeah, I, I, I've heard that particularly with with people younger. Um, you know, like I said, I may be one of the youngest people to really remember it. You know, I mean, six years old, you can't, if I was much younger, I might not have even had that memory of having my dad show me live what was happening. And for, for those people that are younger, you know, they're starting to have a, those, those kids can vote now. <laughs> they can, they have a voice now. They're grown adults who don't have the memory. Um, even a small memory of seeing it on TV and feeling confusion, feeling, seeing adults around them be scared. And, and I think it will get harder to keep it relevant. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's less important. And I find that one tool that makes it relevant is is seeing young people in person or in our COVID world, at least in a Zoom relationship. I think about when I was in school, you know, you learn about history in a textbook. You learn about, you know, what happened in the 1800s mm -hmm. or before you were born. And you might feel bad if you see that there was a war in 1812 and people died but you're not making a, a personal connection. You're not like thinking about it and delving into it. Where I have found if I'm in an assembly and talking to students or I'm down at the World Trade Center volunteering and speaking to people and they can interact and talk, they might look at me and say, oh, you look like my neighbor or my mom. And, and it, it kind of brings it home. Like I mentioned earlier, a regular person on a regular day. It's not just this like, you know, disassociative kind of thing that's happens to other people. Yeah, it seems really far off. Most bad things that happen seem far off if you don't experience them. But having the chance to hear 
just the way you describe walking out the building looking up that's a perspective that i i've never even considered that i've seen videos and i've seen the worst of the worst of the videos of of people who unfortunately you know jump off the building and and i've never been able to put it in that perspective that you just made me have of going what if i was standing there and looked up and saw that and i don't know what i would do i don't know the decisions that i would make either and it's, think- t- it's tough to imagine. You know, we always talk about, I, I think we always sort of reflect upon those types of things and say, oh, you know, I would have done the yeah, right I thing. Done this, I would have made the good decision. I would have stood up for the oppressed. Or, but you don't know. You don't know until you're there. And, you know, when you're just hearing your story, you know, I, I don't know if I would have gotten up and walked down the stairs. I don't. Um, I don't know if I would have you know, stayed with the, the quadriplegic gentleman that, that needed help, you know, and yeah, just, it, it scares me to think about the decisions, you know, that, that we have opportunities to make at a split second at heightened emotion when our decision-making function is probably at its lowest, you know, we're just reacting. We're just sort of, you know, running away or fighting it. And it's hard to fight. Yeah. The, uh, you know, the fight, flight or freeze. And I think there were a lot of people on that day who probably froze. A lot of people obviously took, took flight, but we don't know what we're going to do until we get in that situation. And we have to, you know, as years go on, kind of going back a little bit to survivor's guilt. Like I know someone who lost coworkers because they stayed behind in the building for various reasons. And right. I've heard him say, I should have convinced them to go out. I should have told them this. I should have dragged them out kicking and screaming. But the reality is you didn't know what was going to happen. No, it's a great decision know. now that you know all the facts, but you don't know. You you just, you know, you're doing what you can at the time. And I think some of it, like I ask myself sometimes, how did I see people jumping in front of me and then do anything after that other than like lay screaming on the ground in horror? But I feel like you almost put it in a pocket or compartmentalize it to say, okay, I have to keep going forward. I will deal with this later in the day and I'll have 20 years yeah. of PTSD and, and all of that. But at the time you have to just say, okay, right now, this is what I have to do. And it's not even conscious. Like people right. often say, how did you know to do this or that? Honestly, I can't take credit for it. It's just like instinct. Right. Well, that, that's what I'm saying is, is that you, you weren't deciding to do anything other than get out of there. Yeah. I mean, it, there was no decision to be made. You were just following that instinct to get out and following your your training. So you were prepared. You got out. It was the right decision to, to do. But how, how have you been dealing with it since that time? I, I often say that what has kept me some form of sane is the ability to educate others and talk about it. Um, I think that people who can't talk about it, and there's no shame in that, there's people who can't go to the city, there's people who can't talk about it, but I think that sort of emotionally it has been more difficult because I feel like my outlet is letting people in on it. It's hard. It's hard when, to this day, an unexpected loud noise will make me jump. And people who know me know this, you know, a, a, a loud car backfires, which is common. You know, things that are just normal or a loud clap of thunder when you don't expect it. It's it's difficult. Um, you know, the dreams are still there. 
Some days it seems like it happened, you know, a few months ago instead of 20 years ago. Other days when you feel like, okay, I got this, I'm, I'm somewhat normal. And then you'll have a day where you're not. The best way I can describe it, and it's hard to describe, is you never feel whole. And although I've had friends and family and, and people with very good intentions tell me like, well, no one views you as unwhole or broken or people don't look at you that way. It doesn't matter because it's how you feel. Mm-hmm. It's like people that have these, you know, issues where they look in the mirror and they see someone and it's a distorted image in their mind and they think that they're ugly and they're like a supermodel in real life. You know, if, if you feel broken, that's your reality. And there's really not a, a fix for that. Um, I've tried to take the concept of resilience and sort of impart it in others. And when I've gone through other difficult things like COVID, like, you know, deaths in the family, um, different types of situations, I kind of say, okay, you, you live through 9-11, so you have the skills to go through horrible things. Um, I would prefer to not have to use those skills as often as I have over the years. Sure. It, it definitely kind of gives you the inner fortitude to say, I can do this. So have you, you, you found talking with people, sharing stories sort of therapeutic, I guess? It, 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 and there's also, there's organizations um, that have brought together victims of terrorism, not just 9-11, but I have had right. the occasion to meet terrorism victims from every country you can think of. And there is strength in knowing that people who have survived unimaginable things still have a sense of humor, still can get out of bed in the morning, still can experience fun. Unfortunately, I've also met people that are the other side of that, mm-hmm. that 9-11 is their existence. They have cut themselves off. You know, if you're not a member of the 9-11 family, you know, they don't want to talk to you. Some of it becomes as insane as this will sound like competitive. I've had people actually say to me, oh, what floor were you on? Oh, I was on 29. That's nothing. I was on 65. I'm like, seriously? Like, this is not a contest. You know, it's not who saw worse or how many people did you see die? Like, it's, but just like if you've ever heard in the news of people who pretend that they have breast cancer because they want to belong and they want to wear a pink ribbon, even though they don't have, it's the same kind of thing. Yeah, there's something addictive about being a victim. For some people, you know, if it makes, I think for a lot of people, it makes it easier to justify their own flaws. You know, if I, if I'm more of a victim than you, if I had it worse than Wendy, well, then I don't have to be better than Wendy. <laughs> I don't have to Maybe have it together. Before 9-11, you didn't have anything going on. Maybe you were a loner. Maybe you were a bad person. You did terrible things. Now you feel like you have this, you know, get out of jail free card, so to speak. Or now you have an identity. Like I had nothing going before, but, you know, now mm. I, I often say when I've given speeches, you know, I'm a 9-11 survivor. I own that. I never shy away from it, but I'm also a wife, a daughter, a corporate executive. I'm, I'm many things. It's a piece of me. It's not me. And the day that it becomes me, I don't want to be me. And I won't let it become me. Yeah. It, it, you, you, I don't think you could still be you. Right. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. I, I didn't consider the fact that there were people out there that, but of course, of course, you've met every 9-11 survivor. 
Not all of them, but, and, and there's some, you know, I have one friend who I like very much and they're one of my close friends and they're part of the 9-11 community. And, and we often say, you know, I'm, I'm so happy. I know you, you're great, but I wish I never met you because yeah. the reason I met you is because we met right. through 9-11. Yeah. That's a, yeah. Awful circumstances. It's yeah. a club you don't want to be in. Like I, I met wonderful people who survived tragedies such as, you know, bombings in Northern Ireland and, and the, I went to Madrid for the anniversary of the bombing of the subway in Atocha. Wonderful people, still keep in touch with them. But why did I meet them? For mm -hmm. you know. Well, it's a. Uh, I'm. I know it's a tough story to to share. I, I hope it's at least in some way hopeful for you to share it. I know it's hopeful for us to hear it. Uh, evaluate not just the decision making, which is what led us to have the conversation, but to just sort of honor those people who didn't make it on that day and. I uh, just hope that we don't see anything like that again and that we're a better country ultimately for it. You have to hope. I mean, there a lot of people say that they want the 912 world because if you remember on 912, there was a lot of unity. There was a mm -hmm. lot of let's help yeah. a stranger. Let's, yeah. you know, I, I see a lot of um, similarities with COVID where people are donating food to people they don't know or helping people or doing different things. Um, you know, it's also polarizing. There was a lot of, you know, anti-Islamic activity. And one of my causes is to combat Islamophobia because we can't blame a whole country or a whole series of nations for the actions of a terrorist few. So it's it's weird. It's a very strange, um, you know, contrast because you have like the unity of 9-11 and then you have the polarization of 9-11. And again, it, it, that's, COVID has really brought back a lot of that for me because it's the same thing. You have people that are together and then you have it's a conspiracy theory and all that kind of craziness. Yeah, sure. I was a lot more hopeful um, in March of last year that we would see unity. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I, yeah. I remember sitting there thinking, Oh, uh, geez, you know, this will bring know. us together, right? Everyone, this will everyone I know may die, but at least we'll, at least we'll be, <laughs> at least we'll all be on the same page. And that, uh, that was futile hope that, that, uh, existed for a brief moment for about yeah, one day. Maybe. I was mad about it because like the reason my COVID was so bad, they think is because my lungs are compromised on nine 11. And it's like, seriously, yeah. it keeps on giving, Yeah, you know, but then. I didn't want to tell people that because then it goes to the conspiracy theorists that say, oh, you only get COVID if you have an existing condition, which we know is not true. Right. So, you know. Well, again, Wendy, thank you for sharing the story. Uh, I, I really do appreciate spending time with us and uh, uh, you're, you're doing good work keeping that in front of people's you know, consciousness and uh, telling your story. So thank you. Pleasure to meet all of you virtually. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Why well, I, I, I can do for you? Don't hesitate. Right. Absolutely. Thank One you. thing I know I'm doing is I am uh, not disregarding a fire drill. <laughs> That's right. it. Right. If, if that helped that. you make a better decision on that, then we've done our job. Yeah, right. I hope they're all a big waste of time. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Have a good evening. Thank you so much, Wendy. Wow, that it reminded me of uh, visiting New York City just not very long after 9-11, after, after Wendy told her story. We took the whole family there. You I, were, I remember, you remember going, and our youngest was in a stroller, and it was uh, it was a little chilly that night. We were 
going down the sidewalk around and at the time uh the ground zero was just a it, it wasn't yet a construction site uh, we there was a fire station right across the street from the construction site i'm not sure it's still there and uh one of the firemen was out there and he kind of motioned us in because he wanted to give sophie a little shirt because it was, it was cold outside he gave her a little fireman shirt and we just started talking to him just this guy and we were asking him how he was doing and at first he you could tell people had asked him that mm-hmm. and that he gave a i think a reflective response or a, kind of a, just a reaction like oh you know thanks for asking and it's tough you know he, he said some stuff that you could tell he had said before and then for some reason he kept talking to us and i remember him saying some days i i can't walk outside because i'm afraid something's going to fall on me and they i think they had lost several as you might imagine several people friends of his fellow firefighters and you know it's hard to even retell that story that interaction with him because it was so soon afterwards and to see this guy this big strong fireman who started kind of well up telling us that he sometimes just walking down the sidewalk got scared but that something was going to follow him and it just the the terror that day kind of still you know the, just talking with her kind of brings back a lot of rough times but i'm glad we heard her story and i'm glad we had a, an opportunity to give her a platform to tell it again so people could hear it and, and never forget so enjoyed hearing it like us on social media on facebook give us the five stars and uh, we hope you come back and listen again so, see you soon Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Singer Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers who are not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their own opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.